0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up
1: next, my unedited conversation with the late Sherry Maples. I interviewed her around the edges of a retreat with Thich Nhat Han in 2003. Parts of this interview, as well as my conversation with Thich Nhat Han, appear in our show Remembering Thich Nhat Han, Brother Thai. So, we we've, we've been a monthly national program. We've just become a weekly national program on public radio stations. And uh, this will be an hour around Thich Nhat Han and sort of based at this retreat and w- I did anch- interviewed him yesterday which was wonderful. Oh. So that'll be sort of the the Lucky anchor. You. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. So that'll be sort of the anchor of the program, mm-hmm. but then we'll also have sounds from Plum Village and from this experience and then a few voices from people who are here. Okay. So, I just want to start by asking you, you know, how you first came in contact with this teaching and this man.
0: Well, it was almost uh, it depends on whether you believe in accidents or miracles or coincidences or miracles. Uh, I had read a book and was kind of curious. Uh, you don't think much about this stuff as a cop. I'd been a cop. i have been a cop for 19 years now. At the time, I'd been a cop for seven years. And I found I was uh, on this call where involving a stolen moped where I had to take the stolen moped somewhere the short story is, is I hurt my back very badly, pulling the moped out of the squat of the trunk. So had a worker's comp injury that needed to be treated by a chiropractor. Decided to go to the chiropractor that was closest to the building that I, I started my shift at my, my patrol shift, uh, which was downtown at the time. So I went to this chiropractor who had a flyer for a retreat in Mundelein, Illinois in 1991 on her bulletin board. I'd read a book. I was kind of curious. I thought, why not? So I went to this retreat and kind of changed my life.
1: Can you tell me some more about that? What happened? What changed your life?
0: When you have a chance to sort of deeply experience the practice, the idea of learning to stop doing and to start being, and at that retreat, It was a little longer, and there was much more silent time. We only talked, really, during the things that were together. We maintained noble silence, which was a very new concept for me. But I started to experience a lot of just the refreshing wonders, sort of started to be able to taste the divinity of life at that retreat in a way that I had never, ever experienced. I wouldn't have had words for it then, uh, but it was what became very very, very clear to me is that if you can live in the present moment, there are all kinds of wonders available to be able to nourish and refresh yourself with. Well, as a cop, what started to happen to me there uh, got very interesting because I don't know if you attended the five mindfulness trainings last night, but that was one of the things that happened at my first retreat. And I just assumed, well, I'd listen to this, but I can't do. That. I'm a cop, you know. I mean, I might be in a position where I have to kill somebody at right. some point. I can't think about taking these. And Sister Chong Kong, um, who is one of the probably the senior monastic here, was at that retreat, and she pulled me aside, and she she had this very wonderful conversation with me. The essence of it being, who else would we want to carry a gun except somebody who will do it mindfully? Of course, you can take these trainings. Mm. And I thought about it uh, over the course of the week and it felt right to me. So I did. I took the five mindfulness trainings. And then when I came back, and what happened to me is my heart started to soften and kind of break open for the first time. I had gotten very mechanical about how I was doing my job. I had no idea that I had shut down that way. And I came home and I, 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 I go on probably especially that first week when it was so new and everything felt so fresh, it I started to understand that on a very, very deep level that it's possible to bring this into your work as a cop because as my energy started to change, the energy that I got back from other people started to change, even including the people that I had to arrest and take to jail. But probably the first example of that was is I was on a domestic violence call, and it was one of these calls where I would have just... Arrested the guy I would have just hey <sighs> enough's enough you know he he was um, felt very strongly about the issue and mandatory arrest uh, as a female officer who's had a lot of contact with domestic violence victims and this was a scenario where breaking up is hard to do and uh, they were exchanging they there was a little girl and they were exchanging custody and he was kind of holding the little girl hostage, but, uh, <sighs> not wanting to give her back to, to mom. And there had been no violence that had taken place, but both mom and the little girl were very scared and intimidated. And ordinarily, I would have said, that's it, thrown the hand, slapped the handcuffs on him, taking him to jail. But something stopped me. Uh, and it was, I had just come out of this retreat, and uh, I got the little girl, got him to give me the little girl, took care of her, got her and her mom set, told them just to leave, went back. And I just talked to this guy from my heart, and within five minutes, I mean, I, I've got this big gun belt on, I'm about 5'3", right, and this guy's like 6'6", six, six, and he's balling, you know, and I'm holding this guy with this big gun belt on and everything, and he um, he was just in incredible pain, and that's what, that's what I started realizing we deal with, is misplaced anger because people are in incredible pain. So I ran into him three days later in a little store on Willie Street where I lived at the time, and this guy comes, he sees me off duty, he picks me up, gives me this big bear hug, and says, said, you saved my life that night, thank you. And so when you have experiences like that and you start to realize, well, what am I doing different here? I mean, really it's about softening your heart. When you're a police officer and you do this work, you need to find a way to be able to Maintain both the compassionate bodhisattva within you and the fierce bodhisattva Mm -hmm. and know when each is called for and how to combine the two. And once you start down this path, it's possible to learn that. And uh, that was the beginning for me. It was very powerful, very wonderful. And have
1: you been able to maintain that? Now, this has been 12
0: years or something, right? It's been, um, yep, 12 years. Well... In the beginning, it, would, it wasn't strong enough for me, so it would sort of come and go and I'd still experience these incredible waves. But that, once you've experienced it, you, you know you can come back to it. So the, that first retreat gave me great hope and great faith in my ability to come back to the present moment and nourish myself in the present moment and be in the present moment. So no, I couldn't always maintain it, but as the, my practice got stronger... It got easier, and then you know I started moving through the ranks. At the time I went to the retreat, I can't remember if I was a police officer or a sergeant, but <clears throat> and uh, it, eventually it got pretty important to me to find a sangha, so practice community, because mm-hmm. I was pretty much doing this individually. And then I started being able to extend it in other ways. Okay, how can I build a how can I build a sangha within my police department? How can I make this a family? How can I how can I start thinking about building a place where I get to be who I want to be because they're being who they want to be, where we all support each other in doing that? How can I build an organism within the police department where each police officer, when they're alone, where nobody's looking, represents all of us in a way that we'd feel really good about? And so. Of course, I can't talk like this in the police department. I have to translate the language, but I've been a cop for almost 20 years, so I can do that. And um, now I'm the captain of personnel and training, so my job is I hire everybody for the Madison Police Department. I train everybody. I'm in charge of recruiting, hiring the pre-service academy, in-service training. So I'm now at a position where I get to do just about everything I want, so I get a lot of opportunities to, to... do this and to combine. The way I would talk about it is, uh, is uh, look, we need certain. We don't lose police officers tactically. We've gotten very good at with our equipment, our technology, and our training. In terms of uh, from 1950, we've on we the fewer and fewer police officers have been killed in the line of duty. Where we're losing people is emotionally, um, but tie. I gave Ty those statistics. I mean, there are two to three times as many officers killing themselves now as are being killed in the line of duty. And from a training perspective and a risk perspective, if it's preventable, I mean, if it's predictable, it's preventable. So I started thinking about how to move some training resources to uh, emotional areas. And uh, I certainly don't talk about... uh, but I do I actually have taught thirty eight officers the practice of mindfulness in terms of eating, sitting and walking meditation, some people who I thought would never be interested, as one of several tools available to them to deal with the stress in their lives and the emotional and biological roller coaster of being a police officer. I mean, we deal with people at their as somebody once said, at their maddest, saddest and baddest. Mm. And if you can't find a way to take care of yourself, you're just going to keep responding to the energy that's coming at you and escalate it.
1: Have you seen that help other other police officers as well?
0: I think other police officers that understand that this work has to be done from your heart, that, that it doesn't mean you give up being tough. It doesn't mean you give up your ability to protect people, your ability to go hands-on when you need to, but you do it from a place of awareness and softness and compassion are the people that are happiest doing their jobs and the ones that enjoy it the most. Mm. They're the ones that don't shut down, and the ones we don't lose. So, from from an organizational standpoint, uh, it it is a very important message to, and a very important thing to support in fellow officers.
1: Did you have a hand in making this this retreat
0: happen? Is that right? This retreat was pretty much came about as. Uh, when I decided to take my practice further, in uh, about 2000, I really got much more committed. Uh, so I'd been practicing for nine years. And then I decided I wanted to become uh, a member of the order, a core member of the order, and receive the 14 mindfulness training. So I spent a year kind of getting ready for that and studying with uh, uh, one of the uh, local dharma teachers and declaring my intention. And then I went out to Plum Village last year. For in Vermont three, or in France? Uh, no, in France. In France. Mm-hmm. In France for three weeks, which was probably one of the most wonderful three weeks of my entire life. And I hadn't realized how much healing I still had to do. You know, as a police officer, you're so often a victim and so often an oppressor. You know, you really have to come to grips with both of those but it occurred to me when I was out there because it was so healing for me um, to be out there and uh, I wrote a letter to Ty and put it in the bell because when you want to receive the mindfulness trainings that's one of the requirements to receive the 14 and become a core member and you you never know if Ty reads this stuff or, or what but I found out since then he reads everything but he got my letter which talked a lot about sort of uh, where I met with all of this, and the next day I gave this two hour Dharma talk on the different faces of love and why it's possible to be a bodhisattva and carry a gun. And I'm sitting in the back of the room, bawling my head off basically through this whole thing. Just like, um, it, it was just unbelievable to me. And then I started thinking about, I just started having this image while well, I was out there of, um, my co-workers, other police officers, holding hands and making, doing walking meditation together and making peaceful steps on the earth together. And, um, just, and I'm not even a very visual person, so it was interesting to me that that image popped into my mind a lot. And I mentioned it during working meditation with one of the people. She said, you know, you can make that happen. So by the end of the retreat, I got on the stage with Ty, and I asked him if he would do a retreat for police officers. And he said yes, and this is it. It's a great story. <laughs> it's very moving.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: have you ever had to um, use a force or, God forbid, use your gun since you've begun this training, or face a decision whether or not to? just ask the question.
1: Okay. Uh, have you have you had to, since you began this training, have you had to make a decision to use your gun, and, and was that different?
0: One of the things I think people don't understand about police officers is for the great majority of us, we'll have it out several times. Um, There are very, very few of us that actually ever have to fire our weapon at another human being, even in large cities. I'm not just talking about in cities of 220,000 where I live in, in Madison. But one of the things that I have found is that although all of us take an oath to be able to do that, if necessary, there are very few people that ever recover from doing it. Very few people that ever recover from doing it. In some departments, it's an automatic disability because they don't trust you to be able to make that decision again once you've made it. And so the answer from my standpoint is no. Thank God I've never been in the position where I've had to do that. But uh, as the captain of personnel and training and as somebody who's... uh, in charge of a lot of the functions that happen. I've certainly been in the position now of having to support six officers who have had to make that decision, two who never made it back, uh, three who the the verdict is still out on, uh, whether they do or not, but I think uh, I have never had to do that, but when one of us does it, it feels to me like I do it too that they do it for all of us, that they do it not only for me as a person who could be in the situation. The last situation involved a, a very good friend of mine who was one of four officers who confronted an armed suspect, and he turned around and started firing at them. And there, at that point, there's no choice. Um, that's what you take an oath to do to serve and protect. And any one of us realized it could have been uh, two of the people involved in that have inside jobs. They were on their way to work when the call came. Uh, so anybody knows that they can be in that situation and the way that I feel about it is that although they pulled the trigger they did it for me they did it for the community that I live in and I have to be part of the healing process that happens for them now part of helping them live with the ramifications of having had to do that so part of how I do that is from a work standpoint from a debriefing standpoint and having them talk with young officers but part of How I do that is to spend personal time with each one of them, too, and get them the resources they need to heal and to work through it.
1: Do you know how many law enforcement officers are at this retreat?
0: Well, I can tell you there are 55 people in the criminal justice system. I don't know that I've seen all of the law enforcement officers, if my best guess is there would be 25 to 30 of the 55 people that are in the criminal justice system. And are
1: are they from all over the country? Yeah and tell me what you are hearing or experiencing of the effect this is having on your colleagues i suppose some of them for some of them this is a completely new
0: experience well at first it was kind of a mini revolt because they they really thought if we could have just had a retreat for police officers it would have been incredible but we couldn't get the numbers uh, to come maybe next time um, so we put them at first in a larger group with criminal justice professionals, and that that was unfortunate. I wish from day one I just would have put them with other police officers. Now I've just got all the starting today all the police officers together, but they didn't want to be in a position where one more time they had to explain themselves to somebody. They really wanted to. Uh, they really wanted to talk about. It's a very, very big thing having to face the possibility of having to kill somebody uh, that you could face every day. They wanted to talk about that with each other. They wanted to talk about why are we so critical of each other? Why is there so much stress in our workplaces? How can we apply some of these concepts? And they also sometimes, if you've never been exposed to Teton Han, and I can translate the language for them, but some of them here, you can never, never fight violence with violence. And they're saying to me, well, what the hell am I supposed to do when somebody's beating the crap out of somebody? Am I supposed to stand there and watch them? So they, they, so some of it is literally a translation thing. And, uh, but they're, they're getting it. In, and what's so great about it is for some of them, we all learn in different ways. It's one of the things I've really discovered about learning in the job that I'm in and having to do a lot of overseeing the teaching of young recruits So for some of them, eating meditation is wonderful. For others, it doesn't work at all. For some of them, walking meditation is wonderful. For some of them, it doesn't work at all. For some of them, sitting meditation is wonderful. But to watch them getting the sort of understanding and exposure that I had early on, just to see that there's some richness and nourishment here that you have to... If you... And what we talked about yesterday is my first Zen activity as a little girl was baseball because that was... That was the first activity that I ever performed where I was so absorbed in it, my total focus and concentration was there and nothing else was present. And that's a definition of Zen. That's my definition of Zen. And Mm -hmm. so you have to, as a practitioner, find uh, the ways to practice that resonate with you. And if you are faithful to your practice, your practice will be faithful to you. But you have to help make that. So you have to find ways that help about the understanding of mindfulness so that's one of the things we were talking about yesterday in mm. terms of okay well how do we apply this and how do we find But well, police officers as you can imagine that the major problem is is we deal with being hyper vigilant all the time so we're off the scale up here you know you're you're looking around you all the time wondering where that next problem is coming from and um, if you don't have a way to come back down and and find some ways to take care of yourself you're going to find ways to stay up there because it feels good in an odd sort of way, in dysfunctional ways.
1: It makes a lot of sense to me what you just said about, um, you know, I, I asked Ty, how is your teaching different when you're speaking to these different kinds of groups? I mean, this year he's also doing a retreat for Hollywood filmmakers and for members of Congress, right? Isn't he And amazing? people of color, right? So I said, so, so is there a difference when you speak to these groups or law enforcement officers? And he said, and his answer was so interesting that it he has to come to understand the particular suffering of that group of people and Mm -hmm. sort of what you're describing to me about police officers is needing to bring their particular suffering Mm -hmm. it's a
0: special it's a special form and ty has really taken time i love ty so much he's taken so much time to understand it and where our suffering comes from is really two places one we deal with the 5% of the worst part of society so you you start you know you don't want your kids exposed to that you don't want your partner exposed to that you 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 it's got to go somewhere you don't know who to talk to about it but it starts to affect the way you see people that's one thing and the accumulated stress of you know if you're a young officer and you go to your first accident scene where somebody's head has been rolled over you go to your first you go to a homicide scene, and you see very grisly details. You go to uh, lots of different things that uh, one incident may not cause it, but uh, at the accumulated sort of stuff post-traumatic stress is made from, and you start shutting down, and you don't realize it. So we, you need tools to keep your heart open and soft.
1: Mm. I think this is fabulous. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah.